Welcome to Unleashed at Work and Home, the show dedicated to helping veterinarians, vet techs, dog trainers, shelter and rescue workers, pet sitters, and all the other animal-crazy pet professionals manage their stress and find more joy. I'm your host, Colleen Pilar, and I'm thrilled you're here with us today. Make sure you hit the subscribe button on your favorite app so that you won't miss a single episode. This episode is brought to you by our free community, the Circle of Resilient and Thriving Pet Professionals. If you like the ideas shared here, then you're invited to continue the conversation with other lifelong learners in the community. You can find out more at ColleenPilar.com. It's the perfect place for you to learn cool stuff, feel good, and take action to create the life you love. Come join us. My guest today is Dr. Amy Binder, and she has a very different niche in the whole world of pet professionals. And so I've invited her here today to talk about that, what she does and why she does it, um, and just to generally explore. So welcome, Amy. I'm so glad you could be here today. Can you tell us a little bit about about what kind of professional pet professional are you? What is it you do? (laughs) Great question. (laughs) What do I do? Um, Well, I guess what I like to refer to myself as um, a person who does animal assisted services. So that's how I would define myself. So I am a professional therapist, a licensed professional counselor. So that's my, my day job. And then I am also a dog trainer that I incorporate into a nonprofit that's called teacher's pet. So within that program, we pair harder to adopt kids, adjudicated youth, critically at risk youth, community mental health youth with harder to adopt rescue dogs. So the kids can train the dogs and for the benefit of both, but having both the ability to be the clinician provider slash uh, dog trainer has been helpful. And then I also do work, um, volunteer work at the shelter on a couple of days a week where I work with the shelter dogs that are again, harder to adopt that need some behavior, behavior modifications um, to help them to become more adaptable. So. That's awesome. So that's quite a broad range of talents that you're applying in your mission. How did it all come together that you were like pulling all of these pieces together and moving forward in a in a cohesive way, not just volunteering on the side, but but creating Teacher's Pet and and making it a big piece of your work and your mission? Sure. I started, well, let's see. So back in the late 90s, I'll say, um, early 2000s, I started working at the Michigan Humane Society. I had just graduated with a master's in teaching because I thought that's what I wanted to do. And then through that process, I realized it really wasn't what I wanted to do, right? When I <laughs> felt like I was spending all of my time in a disciplinary role, you know, I, I it just it didn't feel right, which is fine. This happens to people, right? We pursue degrees and then we don't want to do them. So, but the degree itself and being able to work with kids and develop curriculum was useful. Though I paused that and then I went to work at the Michigan Humane Society and I did um, marketing and communications and public relations there, which I loved, but I also started working with the Pet Education Center, which I decided was the area that I, I really loved. I liked being able to help people keep their dogs in their homes. So I that's where I started my dog training journey, right? 20 years, some years ago, there weren't schools and Mm -hmm. online classes or ways to do that. So I had a mentor that I thought I was under for 
about a year and a half, two years, um, to learn what I needed to learn until I could take the CPDT um, and pass and feel like I was somewhat proficient in what I did, um, some validation. So within that, working at the Michigan Humane Society and talking with the director of the Pet Education Center, she kind of had the idea. She was trying to figure out what, where she wanted to take the program, what she wanted to do. And so I was like, you know, you kind of get to define it and however you want to define it. And so after some thought, she called back and said, um, this is what I'm thinking. I want to do something with kids and dogs. Not quite sure what. And she said, since you have the kid part, I have the dog part. Let's put something together. So I said, OK. So I started researching it and I contacted every group that had anything to do with kids and dogs in the U.S. and in Canada. And then I spent a week out at McLaren, um, the youth detention facility out in Oregon, where they had a program called Project Pooch. And it was kind of the first program of its kind, which Teacher's Pet was modeled from um, and learned a lot about how to integrate this type of programming. And then I sat with the director of Pet Education Center and we kind of developed curriculum and content. So I established a some curriculum, um, what our program would look like. And I went through uh, a lot of different other professionals. So I contacted the psychologist of the uh, school district. You know, what are some things, what are some goals and outcomes that would be desirable for schools? That's kind of where I started. It was in the schools. Um, how, what should this look like? And I got into the first school and realized, oh, geez, I don't really know these kids, right? I knew teaching, I could develop curriculum, I could develop lesson plans, I knew the dog part. And then I was like, I don't really understand the kids. So then I went back to school and became a counselor, because that was more helpful, which is really more of in line of what I, I liked. I liked that one on one, the group versus the full classroom size. And that seemed to fit really well. And then when I did my internship at um, a youth detention facility around here, I was able to bring the program, bring the teacher's pet program there. And it's still there in existence. And that was in 2008. So it's been wow. operating out of that location since 2008. And it's been really, really wonderful. But that's kind of the evolution of the program. So once it was successful there and other facilities started to hear about it, like Children's Village was like, hey, do you want to come over here and run a program? And I did. And as much as I had reached out to them over and over and over again and never got a response. Suddenly they were like, hey, do you want to bring the program over? And so I was happy. And then I had a, a third location, another juvenile detention facility, but that one um, ended when the director left. So now we also tie in the community mental health side of things, which is, again, in that therapeutic, educational, vocational kind of a training program. So that's kind of where it started. And that's where we are at this point. So community mental health. Tell me what that means to you and how it how it relates. Sure. So these are kids who, you know, they're in the high school age range, sometimes like later uh, middle school, but they they have chronic mental health related issues, right? So sometimes this has to do with um, living in poverty, food insecurity, uh, coming from abuse, neglect, other forms of trauma, witnesses to violence, parents who've passed away. So just critically at risk is kind of how they're referred. They're not kids who've made the same decisions that the kids in detention have necessarily made, but they are on track for that. So they have a hard time existing in a mainstream school. So they need usually smaller class sizes. They have to be in a different school environment and they require different services. So wraparound services, counseling services, uh, family therapy, a variety of services. So this is just one avenue for them to, um, again, it's in a that therapeutic, educational, vocational space with dogs, which the kids love. So. 
Yeah. And we all know that the kids love it because, of course, we all love it too. But, you know, if you were trying to justify this, there are some really good reasons that this is beneficial. What are the reasons that you found that not just having a a human-to-human interaction, but also incorporating dogs into it, how is that helpful? Oh, there's so many. And it's almost as unique as each individual student, right? Or resident or however, whatever term you want to put on them. But as a whole, there's a lot of similarities between the dogs that we work with and the kids that we work with. So rather than doing the traditional therapy dog program, we bring in therapy dogs, we brought in dogs that had issues, right? They're locked up. They have behavioral issues. They've lived on the street. They are unwanted or feel unwanted. They have behavioral issues. So the similarities we know increase the bonding and attachment of an individual. So if I'm working with a dog and the dog has its own bed and I've never had my own bed, I'm not going to be able to relate in the same way. But now if I see, you know, here I'm a vulnerable child. I'm somebody who came with this emotional baggage, we'll say. Now I get an opportunity to help someone who's even more vulnerable than me. And that is really powerful for a lot of these kids because they don't have that opportunity. You know, people tend to look at them as, the problem. Or if you would just do ABC, then everything would be better. Life would be better. You would be better. And it doesn't work that way. But as they get to see, they a, get to see their own behaviors in the dog. So when the dog's acting a certain way, they'll say, oh, wow, this, my dog's kind of hyper like me. Or, oh, my dog's really uncomfortable around a lot of people like me. So being able to see those similarities in an objective way allows them to also see how they can use behavior modification through that. So if the dog's learning to improve those behaviors, hmm, I I can probably learn to modify those behaviors as well. And they start to see that. So all of those kind of mesh together to the point where we get to see some sometimes pretty dramatic results, right? Yeah. Not saying that it's the kids are cured, right? So to speak, the quote unquote cure. I'm not saying that suddenly they go on to be valedictorian because I mean we have to work within our our limitations as well and even though they might really thrive in this environment and excel in ways that we don't can't even imagine they still have to go home in their same environment and sometimes that's that's the challenge you know they're in the same community they're back all of the factors that kind of pushed them into this role in the first place are still there so it it's kind of challenging and a little bit disheartening from that perspective. But when I see kids, you know, sometimes they'll message me or contact us through our Facebook or somehow get in touch and just to say like, hey, I still have my my picture of me and my dog. I still have my certificate on my shelf. I, you know, I still have this. Like that was a time that was really meaningful. I have a kid right now that I, he came to our camp. We did a dog training camp for middle school kids many years ago. And he came to camp probably three, four or five years. And he struggled a lot. And now he's almost 30 years old. And now he's coming back and he's helping us as a volunteer. So he's been working with us in our, our community mental health program. And he's like, this is the highlight of my week. This is, it's very meaningful for him in the same way, but it meant enough to him at that time that he's like, I need to have more of that in my life. So, Well, it, it broadens the perspective of what's possible. Yes. And exactly. I think that that is so huge for anyone in struggle of any, because we, when we get ourselves stuck or feel like we don't have choices or options or like, oh, I, I can't, yeah. um, just to have a little reframe or a new idea or a new, even if we fall back in the same habit or the same pattern, we still have that information. It doesn't go away. Exactly. And so you can't really measure the impact of a program like yours in 
And what is this person doing six months from now? Because it will ripple. But isn't it amazing to have this person volunteering in his 30s for something that made a difference to him as a teen? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think... I think one of the things that's so important for many people to know, and I think it, I think one of the advantages of working with animals is that it's sometimes for people who have experienced trauma, they sometimes are the most amazing observers and advocates on behalf of animals because they know what it's like to not have someone advocate for them. They know how to to read other individuals, human totally. and dog, and and that is a superpower. I completely agree. Hell, a teenager, you know, you have a lot of people criticizing you for the way you're behaving, and also you have a superpower that that some people could never even imagine and would would love to have. Mm-hmm. An empowering thought, at least. At least I hope it is. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I like that you use the and too, because we always try to focus on that. Like you made these decisions and these things happen to you and you, you know, are living this life and there's an amazing side of it as well. And I think that and is, it's really powerful. It's a lot more powerful than the but, right? You, yeah. you did this, but so now I've negated all of that. So mm-hmm. I like the and. Yeah, it 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 sort of makes space for for all of what is there, the good and the bad, and that we can learn from both and we can grow from both. And we all have both and we all have these experiences. Uh, But since our brains are so wired for noticing bad and talking about bad and working on bad and focusing on bad, sometimes we, and what comes easily to us, we assume comes easily to everyone. So, uh, I mean, just the pet professionals I know are so impassioned and so empathetic and so caring and so giving that sometimes they're like, why isn't everybody like, right. That's not everybody's superpower. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and, and that's why there's such like a high rate of burnout too. Just that a lot mm-hmm. of passion fatigue and a lot of just that, mm-hmm. you know, vicarious trauma from trying so hard to, to make a change. And sometimes it feels like we can't. Yeah. Yeah, everything that makes you good at this job is what puts you at risk of of making this job really, really painful. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So, but you're a counselor and you have all this great background behind you. So what's your magic tip that you'd like to share with all of us to to try to balance some of that? Like <laughs> um, you're working with at-risk kids all the time. You have to be hearing a lot of hard stories. How do you protect the spark that is Amy so that you can keep showing up? Right. So that I'm actually doing things that I'm talking to my clients about doing like in that way. Right. <laughs> Which sometimes we forget. Right. And sometimes mm-hmm. I hear myself as I'm talking to somebody, I'm like, mm, I got to save my, save that for myself later too. Cause we don't, right. Like we get so caught up in that helper role that we absolutely neglect our own because like we do value, I value being a helper. You value being a helper. Other people value being a helper that, well, I don't, I don't want to focus on me because I, I got to focus on and, you know, I always use the story or the little analogy, I guess, of being on an airplane and you have to put on your own oxygen mask before assisting others. And that's really it. And I think, you know, some of, we talked a little bit about quotes and things, but I, I like the idea of controlling what we can control, you know, and being able to look at something without judgment. And I say this all day long, all the time when people say, oh, I'm, 
I'm this and I didn't do this and I should have said this or this person didn't do what I said and now the dog, okay, but we have to look at that through a lens of truth and not a lens of judgment. And we're full of judgment. We get guilt, you know, shame, other um, sadness, other types of experiences, and it's not helpful. And when it's not helpful, it's often hurtful. So we are just recreating more, more pain for ourselves and more discontent. Whereas if we looked at it and we said, okay, this did not work out the way that I wanted, or I feel exhausted by it and I need, I need a break. I need to take a a window. I'm going to take a Saturday and I'm not reading email and I'm not even going to watch anything dog related. I just need to like cleanse my palate. Then we, that's what we need to do. We need to listen to our body more. And again, without judgment, this didn't go right. Okay. Now I know for next time. Oh, wow. It is kind of funny actually that I said that, right? Like whatever it is that we do, we have to be able to look at it in an honest way and in a truthful way, but not in one that is heavy laden with judgment. I think that's what makes things different. That is so helpful and also hard (laughs) because we are so (laughs) wired for judgment, good, bad, you know, big, small. I mean, we like our brain, it's just a a sense-making judgment machine, but we, once we have made a determination of what something means, we rarely evaluate it to see its accuracy. And so your point here about like, well, what's the truth? And can we, can we step away from the judgment part of just like what actually is? What, what can we all agree on mm-hmm. about this as opposed yeah. to what did it seem like to me? Yeah. Um, and what did I think about whether I did that right or wrong, or you did it right or right. wrong, or Right. whether it was even worthwhile. It's hard to do. How how do you help your clients with that piece when they just feed into that self-judgment element? We practice it a lot in session as well. So when they tell a story, then I have to say, okay, now tell that story without the judgment, right? Let's tell that story <laughs> with just the truth. And they do have a hard time. Like, you know, because to some degree, I think either because like you said, we come into this with a lot of our own struggles. So whether that was the parent voice that told us we weren't enough or the teacher who said we weren't good enough or the coach who said we weren't enough or the other kids who told us we weren't enough, like that becomes embedded as like the fabric of our our values about ourselves. And if that's what we truly believe, that's going to be our filter for everything. So it makes it that much harder to say like, okay, it's not true, but it also feels like a blanket, right? Like I've had yeah. many of my my clients say like, I know I shouldn't talk like that and I shouldn't use this language, but sometimes that depression, that sadness feels like it's a comfortable blanket because I know it so well. And then, okay. So then if you want to continue with that feeling, then there's nothing we can do, right? Like that's, you have to not want to feel like that in order to make change. And then when you're ready to not feel like that, let's work on it. Let's do some things that we need to do. And it's, it's amazing to, well, like I have two thoughts. Like I think about one, you know, you mentioned a couple of times our need to focus on the negative or like just that the strength and power Mm -hmm. in that negative thought, which if you're thinking about our brain from the survival mechanism, which is Mm -hmm. what it is, is the survival organ. Like it's Mm got to keep us safe, alive and out of danger all the time. So anything that feels highly emotional is going to feel like danger. So we've always got to be scanning for that. So especially if it's us, oh, what we did could put us in a spot or put somebody else in a spot, which will make me look bad. Like, you know, that's the part that it really taints our thought process. So we have to try to a get out from under that comfy blanket of sadness and self, you know, degradation or whatever it is that we do. We have to, okay, let's look at it again from a truthful standpoint without the bias of 
this isn't so bad, right? Like nobody's harming anybody. Nobody's, there's no death. There's no, nothing that's that, hopefully. And that we can look at it from that, that different lens and let's try it. You know, it's, it's super uncomfortable at first. Let's write it down. Let's draw it out. Let's do it. How, whatever your brain how is, likes to process it. Then our brain can start to say, okay, let's look at it from a truthful side. And it feels better, right? Negative thoughts produce mm-hmm. negative neurochemicals. Positive thoughts produce positive neurochemicals. So our body and our brain believe what we tell it. So we have to start being more truthful with what we tell our brains. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so important about how it makes us feel. And what's interesting is your phrase, that comfy blanket of some of these negative emotions that we do find ourselves in habits of. Like It's easy for people to have that. The the familiarity of that, the predictability of that, that's the way it's always been, is actually a comfort. And even though it's uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. we are we are more afraid at times of changing it yes. because what if what's different is worse? Yes. And some of these beliefs of not enough or or having to hustle for your worth or be helpful or never have any needs, these get installed so very young um, that for many people, they don't have any any history of of a time before that. They don't they don't remember not feeling this way. So it it is familiar and and most of us gravitate toward familiar, even when it's not fabulous. Absolutely. It's very, very common. And it's why people stay in situations. They stay in marriages. They stay in relationships. They maintain friendships that are not healthy because it just feels, it, and it, in some way it feels normal, but it also validates how I feel about myself, right? If I don't mm-hmm. feel like I'm worthy, I'm going to let people treat me very differently than if I feel like I'm worthy. And mm-hmm. sometimes I don't think people always take an honest enough look at themselves. Like, well, no, I'm fine. I, I, I love myself. Okay. But let's really do you, because if you did, you wouldn't let people treat you like this. Right. So we have to be able to look at things again, very honestly and openly. And that's so uncomfortable for people having to look in the mirror and, and be exposed to here's what, here's what is the truth about you. Super uncomfortable. So you have to be in a space and be ready to see that experience like that feels horrible to have to face that now I have to accept that and now I can do something about that yeah 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 it's so tricky it's so tricky to to look at that and to and to be willing to say um that I treat myself the way I wouldn't treat anyone I cared about um, which is such a common thing. It's so common. Like, what if I say, well, if you had a friend in the same situation, what would you be advising? And they're like, well, all of these things. Mm-hmm. And it is one of the reasons why it's so easy for us to look at someone else's life and see that they just need to do this. You know, mm-hmm. you just need to leave him. You just need to whatever. And it's never a just. Never. Never just this. Um, and there's always so much that we're too close to to sometimes see it's really helpful to have someone to talk things through with because we don't even hear the judgment. Like for you to say to your client, fabulous, that was a great story. Now tell me again without judgment. They're like, I what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Right. I it, didn't have any judgment. Oh, I guess I did. Yeah. Oh, all the way through. Ooh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I was pretty harsh with myself. That was pretty, you know, hard. It was expecting too much or you know, whatever it is. Like insert statement here, right? I'd sort of our common statement. Yeah. 
And it's it's so simple and and almost invisible. I was I was doing um show up for yourself session one day about a month ago and I told them about I had something in my yard that I didn't want my dog to have and I said and because I'm not very smart I I didn't think about where I put this. And uh one of the people said, "So I'd just like to point out to you that you just said <laughs> because I'm not very smart." And I was like, "Oh, you're killing me here." <laughs> um and I so respect her for saying it like, and she was, she was really worried. She was so worried that she had offended me. And I was like, grateful that she cared enough about me to just reflect back. Yes. You just said, because I'm not very smart about this. And it was a simple little, but I do, I wish I had put this thing in a different spot. So my dog wasn't obsessing about something that I didn't want her to have. Yes. (laughs) Did I do that because I'm not very smart? No, I did it because I didn't think it through in advance. Right. See, you're moving the emotion and putting the truth in. Yeah. Yeah. But I hadn't heard it till she said it. And and it was a group thing. And so the other people start nodding along. Oh, yeah. I, <laughs> I felt that too when you said it. And mm-hmm. And that's the thing that we don't notice is that when we're talking, lots of people are hearing our judgments and our and our thoughts that that are hurtful and harmful that we may not be hearing. Mm-hmm. And what we say out loud is less than what we're saying inside frequently. Absolutely. Right. Right. It's kind of, I look at it like, you know, when you have your sticky notes, right? Like you, you keep them there so that you remember to do things, but yet you don't because you stop seeing the post-its, you stop mm-hmm. seeing them. They just blend in. And that's kind of how our self-talk is. It's like that sticky note in front of you. Like it's there. Other people are seeing it. Other people are hearing it, but we've just become immune or blind to it. We don't pay attention to it. Yeah. I have eight sticky notes that I can see uh, as I glance around when first off, I didn't know there were eight. And secondly, I think most of them are more than a few weeks old. And um, and they were thoughts that I thought were important. I needed to stick near my monitor. Mm-hmm. They were that important. Yeah. Did, have I taken action on them or learned what's on them? But I haven't gone back and reviewed. Some of them can certainly go away. Some of them, maybe I don't care about anymore. And some of them might be a really great idea that I haven't acted on, but I haven't actually seen them in a while. Right. Even though they're pink and sticking to my <laughs> monitor. <laughs> and right there. Yep. Right exactly there. Exactly right. Yeah. So when you use animals, yeah, I, I want to be careful about that phrase. I don't want to say we're using animals. Um we work with them. We include them. When you work with when you work with dogs and children in these situations, Do you find that those parallels that are like right there, like my pink post-it notes, do, do many of them see it? Like, do many of them have these aha moments where they're, where they can see these parallel structures in in what's happening? Sometimes they can, sometimes they come up with them on their own, which is a beautiful moment. Those are my favorites, right? When, and it usually comes like in any other way that we experience growth is through self-awareness and self-reflection. So a lot of times that's what it comes down to, but sometimes it's in the moment, you know, I'll have the kids say, like, as I mentioned earlier, like, oh, that dog's really hyper and won't listen to me. That must be how my teacher feels about me, right? Like that's something that they've admitted about themselves, which sometimes is is challenging. Um, Other times um, it takes you know, as a facilitator to kind of point it out in the same way that, that your attendee pointed out yours, we'll, we'll point it out and say, wow, did you notice that, you know, you um, always talk about trust, you know, or something? You, I'll just give this example. So there was another student who worked with a, a dog and I think it was probably two or three weeks in that she even started to, they started to connect. 
when looking back on it, and we're talking about her experience with how they didn't connect and then they did connect. And she was able to say through that reflection that, you know, I didn't like the dog's name was Molly. I didn't like Molly. Molly didn't like me. I didn't trust her. And she said, but I just, I kept working with her. And then I, once I started working with her consistently, she started to trust me. That's how it came out. She started to trust me. And it made me think that if I keep working on it with my mom, maybe my mom will eventually trust me. Um, But she was able to make that because of the discussion that we were in, because of the self-reflection that we were doing. And, you know, we do check-ins and we do like kind of a debrief at the end. Through that process, she's able to see that. And she was able to make that connection, which is really powerful because we didn't, we, I didn't know if she trusted her mom or her mom didn't trust her. Like I didn't have that knowledge, but Mm -hmm. she was able to make those connections. And I don't think that's the kind of connection you can make with just a a therapist that you're sitting in front of, right? A, I've had many therapists and I'm tired of telling my life story. So I don't, I don't want to, or B, adults have let me down too many times. You know, when I do admit things and I do say things, honestly, the staff will, they'll tell staff, they'll tell my parents. So I don't trust you. So there's a lot of that in, in play that we have a hard time reaching the kids sometimes. So when they can do this on their own and they can say, identify, I'm struggling because my mom doesn't trust me. I'm learning how to navigate regaining trust because I have been practicing it and experiencing it with this dog. And dogs give, you know, really immediate feedback. If Mm -hmm. we are training or if we're interacting or if we're just approaching and they give us the feedback, I'm uncomfortable, you know, I walk away from you or I approach you, we can modify all of that in real time. So if a kid comes in and he's highly anxious or angry and the dogs can see, you know, the, the, the muscle and whatever, all the tension and stress and they like, mm, I'm not comfortable. And the kid says, oh, my dog hates me. My dog doesn't like me. Okay. Let's modify your, your body language. Like, look, you're, you know, you, you look anxious, you look angry. Like maybe let's do some jumping jacks. Let's kind of release some of that, that anxiety and tension. And then let's, as a little more relaxed person, let's approach the dog and see if the dog does the same thing. And almost always it's different, right? Because now that I'm, okay, now I'm a little bit more relaxed. The dog will approach me now. So they were able to see that like, wow, that really worked. Now I can, I can keep practicing that skill. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, which is such a valuable skill because it's giving them something to focus on within themselves. And then just with their scientist goggles on of, and then what happens, you know, just without judgment, just like, let's just look at it. Then what happens? Exactly. Yeah, that's really that's really powerful. I love how how you're really serving this population because pre-pandemic this was a group that was very much in struggle and all of the articles now are saying that the kids are just they that they've suffered in ways that adults haven't recognized and often don't understand as a result of that are you seeing any differences or or are you just seeing greater volume or are the actual challenges different both i there's definitely the volume um there's a lot more people uh, youth experiencing mental health issues i'm sure related to the pandemic pandemic and being kind of ostracized in a way i mean i don't know if that's the word but they're just away from people they're not able to socially interact in the same way and I think social media treats things differently and from, I mean, it's interesting and you get to connect, but it makes bullying much more prevalent. It's easier to to bully someone from behind a keyboard or a yeah 
text board or whatever. And that happens a lot where they're comparing themselves to other people, the others, Instagrams and snapped, whatever they're, this person's so beautiful. This person's so great. Why am I not? And that comparison is terrible, right? That gets us in trouble all the time. So we have that on top of it. And then you also have within social media, everything being labeled, right? Like, oh, did you know when you do this, that it's a trauma response? Did you know when you do this, that it's ADHD? Did you know? So they get so connected to the label that they don't really want to do anything different because the label is now their identity. So if I have ADHD and I'm telling you, it's okay, you don't have to have that symptom. You don't have to do that. And we can do something else. Well, no, I, I have ADHD. Okay, but that's a that's a behavior, right? That's a behavior. That's a symptom. That's not you. That's not your disease, right? That's a symptom. We can correct that. Oh, no, I have ADHD. It's, it becomes who they are. And so that happens with a lot of the kids, too. They they like a depression uh, diagnosis. They like an anxiety disorder diagnosis. They like a, a bipolar diagnosis, something that now I need to be on meds. Now I have whatever it is. And I find that very sad, you know, that that's how you want to identify, you know, as somebody with yeah. that. I mean, and, and not to minimize what they're experiencing, because it's very powerful what they're experiencing, but it makes it hard harder to treat. Yeah, because it's an identity level belief. Like they're they're mm-hmm. seeing themselves that way. That's an interesting piece. And when we tie it back a little bit to the the comforting blanket of negative emotions, there's a little bit of certainty that it provides. Yes. I don't know what will be different, but I I, I at least know this is why mm-hmm. I have this. Like I have this label. So therefore, yes. Um, yeah. And it normalizes, it normalizes them. It makes them feel, which is a good thing, right? Like, oh, okay. So other people who have these symptoms or behaviors also have this. So it, it helps them feel like they're part of something bigger, which I'm not saying that part's a bad part, but it, it does confound things a little bit. Yeah. It's definitely the, the pros and cons of everything. Everything has good sides and bad sides. One of my sons uh, was was diagnosed with Asperger's when he was 10. And I found the label a little bit helpful because then there were books and things I could read Mm -hmm. and go, oh, actually, a lot of this is very much like him. Um, And then a lot of it isn't. Right. And he chose not to tell people that he had Asperger's. Like, yeah, it was his choice, which was very interesting to me because I – I hadn't thought it was anything either way. You know, like it wouldn't have occurred to me not to say something. But when he went to college specifically, he was like, don't say anything to my friends or anything. Um, and his attempt was to to be living outside of it. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, it is interesting how it, it both helps and hinders at times to have that. Yes. Yeah, that's an interesting way of thinking about it. And I can definitely see how teens who've had struggles and have seen a variety of professionals could then attach to a label mm-hmm. in ways that are both helpful and hurtful to them mm-hmm. as they continue. And and what we really want are healthy adults. Like, that's the goal. Like, let's just help help give kids all of the skills they need because, um, because it's hard and it's beautiful, both. Yes, exactly. The and. Always the and. It's always the and. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So if you had one wish and I had a magic wand and could grant it, what would you wish for pet professionals? Oh, gosh. Um, I, I have several. I'm trying to lump them into one theme. Like, of course, I wish that they felt appreciated, that they felt their efforts were valuable and 
um, listened to, I guess, because I know like for so many and I hear it all the time and I see it myself, like it feels like we're just, oh, here's what we need to do. Here's how the dog could be helped. This is, this will work. Yeah, I don't want to do that. Yeah, I'm not doing that. Right. And then we start to feel like, and I, 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 around here, especially, I see a lot of trainers burning out or not, you know, never mind. I don't want to work with the public anymore because they don't mm-hmm. take what I say seriously. Right. They don't, they don't do the homework. They don't do the work I've asked. And then now they blame me that I, their dog's not helped. And then the imposter syndrome in me questions, well, maybe I don't know, maybe I'm not telling them the right thing, whatever it is that kind of feeds that whole negativity. So I think, again, if, if it's just one wish, that would be the wish that they can feel good about what they're doing and know they're doing great things, even if it doesn't feel like it. I guess, does that count? Yeah, it counts. Yeah. And it ties in with a little bit of what we said before of that you can't always tell in the moment the difference you're making. Mm-hmm. And um, and that that we are doing things that can give people new perspectives, but but we don't always know when that will hit or when it will happen. And you know, that is always the challenge. Yes, it is. So if people wanted to learn more about you and your work, how could they do that? Well, uh, Teacher's Pet Michigan is our organization, and it's at www.teacherspetmi.org. We also have a Facebook page that's uh, Teacher's Pet Dogs and Kids Learning Together. We have an Instagram as well, same handle. And we're always looking for anybody who wants to help us from a training perspective, as you have, um, from a facilitator, volunteer, you want to bring in treats, cut up treats, train dogs, whatever. We're always looking for help. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks for talking to me today, Amy. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. I, I love talking about it. <laughs> so <laughs> It's important I work. I appreciate you. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Unleashed at Work and Home. I invite you to come learn more at ColleenPilar.com, where you can be steady, be strong, and be long.